It's the 15th of July, 2022, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. As you may have noticed, July is a new campaign, and our campaign this month is Solving Stills Disease. Throughout the month, we'll be highlighting news, new reports, new journal articles, and some featured blogs on the topic of febrile disorders and auto-inflammatory diseases and, of course, Stills disease. So we have a lot of that in this particular podcast. Um, Get ready. Here it comes. But let's begin with a few new reports and announcements, I think, that are worth reviewing here on the podcast. I think one of the more surprising things that happened um, this uh, last week or so was the final report on the Eustachinumab in SLE study. You know, this is Ron Van Vollenhoffen's study. It's the LOTUS study, um, and it's a phase three, large 512 um, was the number of patients that should have been enrolled in this study. Uh, as you know, the phase two study um, where Eustachinumab, the IL-1223 inhibitor, was being uh, tested in patients with lupus looked really, really good. And that was nice and surprising and gave us a new mechanistic understanding of how we can probably attack lupus in a different way. But now the phase three trial sort of hasn't done so well. In fact, the study was halted prematurely due to a lack of efficacy. There were no new safety signals. And just with the lower number of patients that were um, accrued and had a one year of follow-up, the primary endpoint, the SRI4, was lower with used to kinemab, then with placebo, 44% versus 56%. Yet another study that looked great in phase two, but crashed and burned in phase three. Lupus is a tough nut to crack, but then again, you know that. You treat lupus patients. The other big announcement from this past week was the uh, new FDA approval in the gout space. Uh, as you know, peglodicase has already been approved for refractory gout patients, and the, the recent research showing that by adding methotrexate to it, you can improve outcomes has now been, um, I guess, uh, finalized and, and rubber stamped by the FDA. Methotrexate in combination with peglodicase is now approved by the FDA, uh, and it can this co-administration is meant to improve, one, the overall response rates, but also um, diminish the amount of anti-PEG antibodies which can get in the way of the drug's long-term success. So that's a nice addition. A New Zealand registry looked at about a million patients who did not have cardiovascular disease and found amongst that million, 32,000 who had gout. And the question was, does gout increase your risk of cardiovascular disease? You probably already know the answer, but this is a nice way of looking at this. They compared those who had gout to those who did not. And having gout increased the risk of CV events in women by 34% and in men by 18%. Um, The cardiovascular risk in men was increased if they were not on urate-lowering therapy and if they were not yet at target. That was about a 15 to 16% increase in those people. Those same numbers were not seen in women. Um, so, again, um, gout, clearly a risk for cardiovascular events. I don't know if you've ever um, 
pondered this question or argued with your colleagues about this question, when do you send your patients who have inflammatory myositis for physical therapy? You know, usually the, the adage is you wait until inflammation dies down and then you start the therapy. Well, there actually was a meta-analysis published this past week that looked at 19 studies in almost 300 patients. And across the board, they showed significant improvements in strength and aerobic capacity without any change in CK or other um, negative aspects to physical therapy. The point is, once you make the diagnosis, refer. And then as soon as they're in the hands of the, uh, of the physiatrist and their team, they'll start as soon as possible, even while they may not be totally yet controlled. I think it's something that we should do in changing the way we manage those patients. Um, a look back at what happens to arthroplasty patients one year later, what is the success rate? Uh, and this was drawn from 20, stu 20 studies, almost 11,000 patients. And what were the predictors of success with knee replacement surgery? You know, I had both knees replaced. And I remember sitting in a lecture by uh, Bill Bugby from San Diego, and he showed the rates of success being much, much higher for hip replacement than for a knee replacement. This made me mad because I was going to have knee replacement surgery, but it really what it made me do was double down on my prehab, and I was going to prove him wrong. And luckily, my... Uh, surgery went really well. My outcomes were really good. Now I can walk forever. My feet will kill me. My back is hurting, but my knees, they can go forever. Well, in this study, again, let's get back to the study and less about me. Um, they found that patients who had high BMI, that they had worse function overall, meaning that your patients who are really out of shape, they're not going to do functionally well a year later. And that's probably because they're not doing the prehab before and the rehab after because they got an excuse. Boy, it hurts. Oh, I'm, I get winded or whatever. Again, this is a big, big issue with the success of surgery. They also found that physical function and OA severity predicted better function, meaning that if you were had poor function and you had bad disease and you had your knees replaced, guess what? Function got better, and you're, of course, this knee severity went away from most people, and hence that was another predictor of success. Negative news, however, for those of you who like to do hyaluronic acid injections. Most rheumatologists that I know don't believe much in it. Most of us have done this at one time or another, usually because we have so few options available. A few of you actually have visco supplementation clinics, and God bless you for doing it. Um, you're like the orthopedist who found um, something to do on Wednesday. Um, I don't know if it's a revenue stream or you really believe in it, but um, a big meta-analysis, I think this appeared in JAMA, 169 trials, 21,000 randomized patients, basically showed a very small, significantly you know, better, but incredibly small effect in all these patients. So the bottom line was that the amount of pain improvement was like a minus two millimeters on a zero to 100 millimeter scale, or the other measures of efficacy were far below the threshold of clinically meaning, meaningful, important um, outcomes. So again, this supports my view that I'm not gonna do much of this. I don't know how, what it changes in your mind, but again, it's strong evidence. Uh, and it's really not been in most of the guidelines that have come out in the last few years, orthopedic or ACR. A French registry looked at uh, IBD cases arising with 
the use of an IL-17 inhibitor. Uh, in this registry, they identified 32 patients and basically showed the outcomes were really very good. That, in fact, new um, cases of IBD from IL-17, in fact, decreased from 2016 to 19. Maybe we're getting better at prescribing it. They showed that um, most of these occurred more so in AS of the 32 patients they had. Um, um, uh, it occurred in 27 who had AS and the rest who had psoriasis. Now, these cases were only secukinumab cases. I think that may be reflecting the nature of the registry that was being looked at. The onset of IBD was, in general, about four months with a range of one to seven months after starting the IL-17 inhibitor. But again, the outcomes were all good. Nobody died. A good outcome in 24 out of 31 patients. The Select Axis 1 study was published recently. The upadacitinib in patients with active ankylosing spondylitis had a prior inadequate response to at least one biologic. This was a pivotal phase 2-3 trial of 420 patients, and they showed um, at week 14 the ASAS-40 results were significantly better with UPA than placebo. Again, you're going head-to-head -head against placebo, but then, and then again, you know, 45% versus 18%, that's pretty good um, and highly significant. This was actually presented at ULAR as well. Um, I have an interest in the strange occurrence of psoriatic arthritis sine psoriasis. Sine, the Latin meaning without, um, and there's about 10% of patients who have psoriatic arthritis who have not yet manifest cutaneous psoriasis. Now, they could have nail disease. They could have other features. The question is, how do you differentiate a PSA sine PSO from a seronegative RA? And this one report it tackles this. Uh, first off, I would say that um, sine psoriasis patients is much more likely in children than it is in adults. Um, but it does occur in adults, and it's a very small percentage, again, about 10% or less. The patients who have psoriatic arthritis, sine psoriasis, tend to have peripheral arthritis, obviously no skin disease, but they may have axial symptoms. They may have a family history of psoriasis. They may have nail changes, dactylitis, enthesitis, DIP involvement, tend to be features seen that might distinguish um, the PSA Sine PSOs from seronegative RA. I think I found, I find that kind of information helpful. Not helpful this time was a recent MMWR from the CDC about the risk of COVID hospitalizations amongst the immunosuppressed. This was good data. I like it. It kind of falls in line with our thinking right now that immunocompromised patients make up about 12% of the COVID patients who got hospitalized. Uh, and therefore, saying that our patients, if they do get COVID, are at an increased risk for ICU admission, 26% increased risk, or death, 34% increased risk, even if they were vaccinated. So if vaccinated, um, your risk of an ICU admission was 40% up. So really worrisome here is that in the immunocompromised, death rates were not affected by vaccination. I scratched my head on this one a long time. The authors of this MMWR said, it's not just the vaccination. You've got to do a bunch of things and include all the recommendations on avoiding the infection and how to manage the immunocompromised patient uh, when there's a risk for COVID or those who get COVID. 
Again, this might be an MMWR worth reviewing. So now I have a bevy of reports centered around fever, auto-inflammatory, MAS, and Stills disease, kids and adults. First, a worldwide analysis of FUO patients, as you know, amongst FUO series, large FUO series, beginning with the Petersdorf series, I think in 1960, and then later again, what was it, 80, 82, 81? Um, Stills disease is the number one rheumatic cause of FUO. This, however, is a report, a worldwide meta-analysis looking at what was the cause of FUO. And worldwide, the leading cause was, drum roll please, mycobacterium tuberculosis. And that was 34% of the cases. Second, what are you thinking? Probably not going to get this one right. Eating goats or goat milk worldwide, that's right, brucellosis, um, 10%. Endocarditis, 7.5%, abscesses, 7%, CMV or EBV, 7%, pneumonia, 6%, URI, really? FUO, 6%, and teric fevers, 5%. So worldwide, Stills disease doesn't really fall on the list. But again, if you look at FUO series, it's high on the list. One of the things that you do in patients who have FUO is you undertake a large battery of tests this particular report looked at FDG PET scans in the evaluation of 58 patients with FUOs. The diagnosis was rheumatic in 45%. It was malignancy in 35% and infectious in 10%. The most prevalent rheumatic diagnosis by FDG PET was vasculitis, 17%, especially large vessel vasculitis. Hence, they concluded that FDG PET was useful in the evaluation of FUO. In vasculitis, as you know, the PET shows you really well the activity of large vessel disease, whereas MRI and CTA would show you the damage of a large vessel vasculitis. Um, the big problem here, of course, is can you get it approved? Will it be paid for? Um, might be easier if someone's an inpatient. Going to be really difficult if there's an outpatient uh, case that you're working on. So what is the definition of refractory systemic JIA? Uh, I found a report this week that said about one in seven cases are probably refractory in some way or another. And these authors said that the definition would be active systemic disease, fever, rash, pleuritis, crazy labs, or arthritic disease despite the use of an IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitor. They also went on to suggest that maybe refractory patients or difficult patients might include those who develop MAS, ILD, or amyloidosis. The good news is, whether they are refractory or not, there are many other options besides IL-1 or IL-6 inhibition. You need to read the paper to actually find out what those are. The, the, the Egyptian um, rheumatologists came up with their guidelines for MAS that may complicate systemic JIA. While this doesn't get a lot of play, I thought that their conclusions were smart and worth repeating here because they're instructive. So in their case, the diagnosis of MAS was based on fever, high fevers in a systemic JIA patient with a high ferritin greater than 684 and any two of the following, thrombocytosis, um, elevated hepatic enzymes, elevated triglycerides, or low fibrinogen. Again, this gave a fairly good um, performance characteristics that they, that they reviewed. A single study comparison, center comparison 
of 18 patients with MAS and 16 patients with HLH. Again, are they the same? Especially when HLH is associated with malignancy. Um, they really, in many ways, are the same lab-wise and whatnot. It's just a host, right? Um, when it's in malignancy, we tend to call it HLH. Notable differences in this particular single-center study was that platelet counts were lower in malignancy-associated HLH, 29,000 versus 50,000 in MAS. Soluble uh, serum IL-2 receptor levels were, all, were higher in patients with malignancy-associated disease, and there was more hepatomegaly. So overall, less mortality was seen with MAS, 22% versus 44%. There are differences, and maybe semantics, but here's a paper that supports your semantics. I found a really interesting paper in one of the science journals about the um, ability of mitochondrial DNA to drive um, autoinflammation. Auto um, and specifically what they see here is that we know that mitochondrial DNA can be uh, taken up by um, nets, neutrophils, lead to nets, uh, lead to activation of sting and the generation of type 1 interferons. Bad. But it actually is the same signals that can lead to um, signaling through uh, cyclic GMP synthetase, or what's called um, C-gas sting, and that triggers the inflammasome and whatnot. Usually it's got to be oxidized mitochondrial uh, DNA that leads to this. This could be a future target in, uh, um, in how to manage or diagnose this condition. My last report is about the utility of MRP8 and MRP14 as diagnostic marker and maybe a biomarker in systemic JIA. Myeloid-related protein 8 and 14 um, was studied in over 1,100 patients, I believe, um, and they showed that when you compared uh, 1,100 patients who had fever, then these were pediatric kids with FUOs, and when they looked at the, those who had SJIA versus all the other forms of fever, that there was a four to six-fold higher level um, of MRP8, MRP14 compared to those who didn't have systemic JIA. So again, in those that were not on treatment, the numbers were 20,000 nanograms per ml versus 4,600 in other diagnoses. They overall had a sensitivity of about 73 to 79%, a specificity that was around 90%. This, this marker outperformed ferritin, IL-18, sedrate, um, and soluble IL-2 IL receptors, and also um, procalcitonin, all um, previously mentioned as potential biomarkers. There's a nice editorial by Di Benedetti and colleagues basically showing that this marker is found on neutrophils, monocytes, macrophages. They um, bind to TLR4, uh, are capable of feeding back positively on inflammation and are probably very much involved in the pathogenesis of um, auto-inflammatory disease and, may, and maybe specifically systemic JA. We need more research to actually look at that. Um, I want you to look at the QD clinics we have this week and the next few weeks. It's called Stills Disease or Not. They're short cases. You figure out whether the patient has Stills Disease or not.